Welcome back to another episode of Tank Talks. I'm your host, Matt Cohen. And on today's show, we welcome the incredible real estate investor, John Love, founder and CEO of Kingset Capital. John shares some incredible stories from his early years of running Oxford properties and the lessons he learned from helping the firm navigate two real estate market downturns and how the eventual sale to Omers came to be. John discusses the reasons he decided to launch Kingset Capital back in 2002 and how his leadership style has evolved from his early days at Oxford Properties and how he has been able to grow the firm's assets to over $17 billion. We dig into his views on the innovation in the real estate industry and beyond and how Canada is falling behind on many aspects of innovation and how Kingset is trying to lead by example. Lastly, we talk about his views on work culture and the return to office mandate CEOs are facing today and his thoughts on the current political climate in Ottawa. Before we jump into this week's interview with John Love, we welcome back to the tank John Ruffalo to discuss the news and stories making headlines in the tech and venture capital ecosystem. Welcome back to the tank, John. You know, you wrote an article in the Globe and Mail the other day titled, Canada's science and tech ecosystem is broken and businesses need to do more to invest. The highlights from the article that I took away were how Canada's tech and science research ecosystem is lagging, contributing to the brain drain of skilled workers to the U.S. and underfunding in research, and also the need to address the incentives that Canadian businesses need to do to invest more in local research and talent. And finally, how the shred tax credit system in Canada needs to see a modernization to better support our innovation economy. I want to hear about your thoughts about why you decided to write this article and the ideas that you wanted to come about it. The genesis of the article was really my criticism to the universities, and you and I had talked about this before, of accepting significant amounts of funding either from foreign corporations or in some terrible cases, some hostile nation states. And that serious criticism rang a bell and and you know University of Waterloo was was frankly the number one on the list, followed by U, uh, U of T and I think it was UBC. And the question then was, and I had a nice chat with Vivek Owell and, and he didn't disagree. He understood the point. And then the next question is, well, how do we fill the hole? And that's the issue. And the only places, if you want it from Canadian sources, it must be public and private partnerships. So the idea was a few, it was a smattering of some ideas on how to incent companies. Our companies, our large companies, our banks are falling woefully short. And we had a whole bunch of other recommendations. You could only put so many in there, but that's really the genesis. Right. And so, John, you also spoke about how the universities and businesses should forge long-term partnerships, as seen in Samsung's collaboration with South Korean universities, to nurture talent and drive industry-specific research. So can you give some examples of what kind of industries you want to see collaborating with our institutions? You deal a lot with a lot of large corporates that are looking for for certain skill talent. We have the universities that are pumping out talent. And in many cases, those two don't actually meet. And so what ends up happening, a lot of the companies then seek foreign talent to fill the holes. So really the collaboration in the Samsung example is a very close partnership with Samsung and the University of Korea to ensure that those are aligned. And the incentives that we suggested, and there's there's more incentives, but but frankly, do you really need incentives if you're looking for a talented workforce and we've got some of the best schools in the world right in our own backyard who can actually train people? That's the mismatch. Got it. And do you think there's ever this sort of why should we have private enterprises either funding or collaborating with our public institutions question? Or do you think that's just sort of like 1% of the problem that can be totally forgotten about or not really taken over the conversation because there's so many more benefits on the positive side? If people want to take that view and actually believe that interacting with government and academic don't matter, please let me know because I really want to short that stock. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) fair enough. You know, speaking of maybe dismantling partnerships, there was a very large uh, hoo-ha made about how the Alberta Premier, Danielle Smith, wants what Quebec has built over generations with Case de Poe by taking money out of our sovereign wealth fund and putting it into Alberta only. So taking their stake of what she believes is their stake of the CPP, the Canada Pension Plan, and moving half of the fund's assets into Alberta coffers 
to allow them to manage it just like Quebec is managing their pension fund and have the Alberta pension plan manage the assets for them. Can you please explain why this is such a terrible idea? The issue, aside from destabilizing CBPIB's fund, it's the undertones of the geopolitical ramifications. Matt, you were at our summit where Peter Zion actually specifically pointed out Alberta as being unfairly treated, not from an ideological perspective, but their demographics are the youngest in the country. Their contribution to the tax base and wealth of Canada is so disproportionately high, specifically to the province of Ontario, uh, of Alberta. So when you see all that, and then you get you know the perception, and I think it's real, the federal government treating the West the way that it is, I could see the angst. And this, to me, is the result of all of that angst. And I think that we need to... to to address the underlying geopolitical issue before this gets a whole lot worse. Right. So this is just sort of the outcome that comes from all the disagreements and the taking advantage of that people in the West have felt from the rest of the country. You know, there's always been a saying in Canada how Canada is really designed like a cow. On the West Coast, you have the head of the cow where it eats up all the resources in Alberta and in British Columbia. And in the middle, the udders are milked in Ottawa and Quebec and Ontario. And on the east, unfortunately, that's where the tail and the rear ends are. And that's everything that gets shit out. Unfortunately, it's starting to feel like Canada has starting to realize this and where people in Alberta are getting very frustrated with the fact that they are contributing the most, even though they only represent about 16% of the contributions to CPP, but they want half of the assets. Now, ignoring all the geopolitical side of it, CPP has actually done a very good job, you know, for the most part. They've averaged over 10% annual returns, well above the 7.2% yearly gains posted by the Alberta Investment Management Company, AIMCO, which obviously oversees their public sector pensions. You know, but with $575 billion in assets, there's also this law of large numbers that CPP has at their advantage, right? Yes. So it's interesting. On pension funds, there is a scale issue. So when a pension fund is seriously subscale, they have difficulty allocating their assets to all of the various asset classes to, to have a balanced portfolio that you might argue because they can't cut big checks, they can't get into you know the best funds, etc. But the, there's a big question on whether there is a diminishing return when you get too big. So the one is a good example is the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund. There are arguments that it is so big that it's just basically an index. The question here is not really whether CBB is too big at this point, because exactly what you just said, it's actually performed very, very well, but you are doubling up the costs. And really, what are you going to accomplish? Is Alberta saying we could outperform what CBBI did? Or is it, are they really saying, you know what, screw you guys. I want to control our own money, and I think it's really the latter. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it comes down to a performance issue or lack of performance. It's really a, a political issue about, like, we want what's ours and let us do what we want with it. But by the way, Alberta did have such a fund. Remember the Heritage Fund? That was supposed to be, it was the same-ish size of the Norwegian Fund 40 years or whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit. And Norway, Norway's, what, $1.2 trillion? And the heritage fund is almost like it's 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 single digit or double maybe double digit billions. There was an opportunity, but it was actually blown away uh, again for political reasons many years ago. Yeah, absolutely. You know, speaking of large numbers, there was a huge M and A deal announced the other week where networking giant Cisco announced that they're acquiring data observability platform Splunk for twenty eight billion in cash. And what Bloomberg calls the Moby Dick of deals. You know, what do you think this signals to the market? Is this the Microsoft LinkedIn acquisition at the bottom of that downturn? Or is this something else? I don't know the strategic rationale or the details. But again, my first reaction was, whoa, that was a very big number. It's about 10% of their market cap. Yeah, in Cisco, you know, when was the last time people really talked about Cisco in terms of their 
you know, where they are in the marketplace from a technological perspective. So it feels to me that Cisco was really trying to take a jump forward, but I haven't looked at the, the most recent stock price, but the shareholders of Cisco did not seemingly like the deal either. They thought it was well overpriced. Now, do you think this will ignite a software deal friend, frenzy? No, I don't. I don't think so. I think it was a one-off situation of a company that is seemingly realizing they're coming up in the rear. No different, frankly, than AWS uh, was a recent announcement in Anthropic. They kept on pushing it away, and then I'm sure they went, "Oh, we're going to be left behind." If this is a three-horse race, they will be coming at least in fourth. So it's the same thing. I think that just the reaction of an individual player realizing they got to make a strategic move. Right. So let's double click on that. So Amazon has made a bet on Anthropic AI. Four billion dollar deal gives Amazon a minority ownership stake in OpenAI rival and seals a strategic partnership in advance of GenAI using AWS as its primary cloud provider. So again, you've got these sort of like, you know, investments, but through service providing contracts, not really cash necessarily. And it sounds like Amazon is really just backing up the truck with a $1.25 billion with an option to increase its stake to $4 billion. And as part of the deal, Anthropic has agreed to use AWS as cloud services, but they did not disclose how much AWS or Amazon's investment was worth to the company. Correct. Yes. No valuation was disclosed. So Google, of course, that has Bard, which uh, is already poised to be one of the, the, the major players, obviously had the minority investment. What happens to Google? Now, Google, I think, was simply sim, uh, was seeking optionality. And they were making optionality bets on a variety of players so that they can kind of watch their various moves. But Google was going it alone. Microsoft has made their move. I, I do think that AWS was realizing if the rule of three applies from an infrastructure perspective, and you and I talked about this doesn't require billions. This is tens of billions of dollars of investments. You need the resources of a massive company just to pay for the compute power uh, involved. Right. I mean, in May, Google invested $450 million, And now you've got uh, Amazon jumping into bed with all of them. So it does feel like this these war of threes is really playing out here. And it's more than just providing like actual cash investments. There's so many different tranches to these types of deals where it's hardware investments and cloud computing costs and all these other things that make up the investment decisions and also defense, right? Like it's a defensive play for them, not just purely a, hey, this is a capital investment that we think will appreciate over the next 10 years. Yeah, purely defensive. Right. So let's talk about the public markets on the other side. So we had ARM, Instacart, and Klaviyo all trading at or just above their IPO price. So ARM went public at 51, reached a high at 69, currently trading around 53. Instacart went public at 30, uh, which was a huge down round from their last $38, $39 billion valuation. But we all know the story there. They had to go public. There was just this huge backlog of preferred shares that needed to get cleaned up and get these companies building in public. That's trading at uh, around $30 where it went public. And then Klaviyo, which was the best one of them all, you know, was a price at 31 per share, trade as high as 39 and is now at 34. I'd like to talk about Klaviyo in relation to our Canadian friends at Shopify. How freaking smart are these guys at Shopify for doing all of these ecosystem bets that end up returning like three, four X? You've got Klaviyo now, $100 million. That's worth, I don't know, 400 million or so. They've got investments in Bench and Stripe, uh, and the list goes on. Then they, they had the Flexport deal they did as well recently. So how do you think this plays out, though, from more strategics thinking about doing these pre-IPO investments and filling the gap from these kind of growth investors? What are you seeing? What I see is Shopify now. It's not in every case. The Flexport one was a little bit different, right? Because they had to dump those assets out and really correct a mistake. But not bad to bet on Ryan Peterson. But on the Clavio, the thing that was interesting there is the reason why Clavio is so tremendous, or one of the major reasons, is they got to use the Shopify ecosystem. And the value of the Shopify ecosystem to help create businesses is really the secret sauce there. So why not take an equity stake if you're actually the reason for that business uh, 
growing the way that they did. So I think it's a beautiful situation. Other corporates really try to do the same thing. The challenge of the discipline is, is how do you separate those investments that truly you could help grow versus those that, you know, you, you kind of go, wow, it's kind of cool. Maybe that will be a future product set. And then they get completely orphaned from an investment perspective. But I know in Shopify and I, I speak to Bram Sugarman, one of his jobs, you know, on the venture side is to ensure that the value is created. And I think that was a huge win. Yeah. Bram and the team there have done a phenomenal job, not only building out the ecosystem, but also investing in it and publicly benefiting from it. You know, was that ever a topic of conversation when you were an investor in Shopify before it went public, obviously, or was that still too early in the days about the ecosystem and the investing? It was way too early. We, we, we had no idea that the value of its ecosystem would be like that. We did go as far as they were one part of the entire transaction ecosystem, right from the CRM of a customer making a buying decision all the way to the end, or right before you get to the accounting system. That was the strategy for sure. And so we could see that, but this is just uh, Toby's genius of of really seeing how uh, the, the uh, Shopify could create value in ways that none of us had imagined. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I honestly can't believe I'm saying this, but we may have a tentative agreement in the longest strike ever, four and a half months in the writer's deal reach. <laughs> so that there's a, a tentative agreement reached in the actor's strike against the studios. Uh, it was a four and a half month strike if approved by the members. What are your thoughts on this? And do you think, you know, we'll see a conclusion to the next strike that is uh, currently playing out in the UWA work? They didn't disclose, or at least I haven't seen what they had agreed to. So I'm curious. The one that I am most curious about is the whole issue around AI. If you recall, they changed their position halfway through. They first said AI cannot be used in any part of the filmmaking process, scripts, etc. But then it changed more so that if someone's using a likeness of an existing person, that person needs to receive the monetization of, of, of that usage, which I, I totally agree with. So I am very curious on what happened on there, but the studios were going to be hell-bent on, on holding out because they're very concerned on the cord-cutting issue. I'm curious also on how much did they actually increase on the comp side. Yeah, I think the the difference between this strike and obviously the focus around AI is that there was actually content in IP getting created that needed to be figured out. And that's very valuable to this industry. Whereas in the auto worker strike, I just don't really see how they have much leverage with a commodity product like that. Like it just feels like it's at the wrong time to be fighting for this. Obviously, they want their fair share of like, you know, rising costs and inflation and things like that. But like, Tesla's just going to eat their lunch at the end of the day. Yeah. You know what's really bizarre? So the Canadian one is either being or been resolved. But I was just reading on the US one. And what's bizarre to me, they're fighting against future and the inevitability of renewable vehicles. It is so bizarre. And now you have Biden and Trump, I think today in the state of Michigan, both sort of saying, hey, folks, you know, no, don't don't worry, you know, you're going to keep all of your jobs. But I, I can't believe it's let's pretend that none of the world is changing. And let's just pretend that everything is the same as it was in the 1950s. And we'll all be very, very happy. Uh, so I find this one of the most bizarre situations. Yeah, I mean, the train has left the station on 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 green energy and, you know, electric vehicles. And if it wasn't a political year, a, a, a voting year for presidency, I don't think they would have the same sort of voices. And, you know, the, the problem on this sort of stuff is that do you want jobs in your state in the first place, right? You saw now that they're hesitating on the, the battery plant. They just hesitated on it. I know that's being used as a little bit of grandstanding, but there's some truth in that. The rest of the world has moved ahead and the investment is going to end up someplace else. 
Exactly. I mean, the beautiful thing about capitalism with all of its issues is it always finds the path of least resistance and efficiency when it tries to actually deploy itself. And I think by putting up all these barriers and restrictions on what people should be doing with their dollars to invest, I mean, they just say, fine, then we're not going to build here and we're going to move somewhere else. Just like Musk has done with all of his factories. You know what it reminds me of? And you remember when, uh, now this is for your young listeners or go, what the hell is he talking about? In my view, so you get, now you're going to get hate mail. My, well, I think one of the greatest presidents was Ronald Reagan and what he did in the United States. And one of the things that is legendary was there was a strike with the uh, air traffic controllers. And they were holding the U.S. for ransom, basically. And Reagan said, great, all of you quit. And they fired the entire industry. Now, they got folks coming in and there was there was some uh, close calls on there. but ultimately. He stood ground in saying, guys, the the technology is changing. All of this stuff is changing, and they were resisting the change. So not, not to suggest the same thing is going to happen, but how do you find the best answer given where the rest of the world is going? I would have thought is the best path forward. Yeah. I mean, it's exactly what we're going to be talking about on our episode today with uh, John Love at Kingset. You know, if you want to be the remote employee that works out of the office, then I'm going to compare you to everyone around the world who works in Manila, who works in Budapest, who works in, you know, anywhere. But if you're in the office, I can only compare you to the other people who are in the office. Uh, and that's just the way it's going to play out. Well, this has been fantastic, John. As always, thanks so much for joining us in the tank today. All right. Thanks, Matt. Now let's jump into the tank for this week's interview with John Love from Kingset Capital. Thanks for joining us in the tank today, John. My pleasure. Good to be here. You know, John, it's not every day that we have someone so experienced and well-recognized from the investment community join us on the show. So I'm very appreciative of your willingness to chat with us. But before we get into it, it would be great if you can give our audience a brief background on yourself and how you ended up in the real estate investment world. Given that you're so well-respected in the industry for so many years, did you always want to be in the real estate industry? So I'm an Edmonton native. My first job out of, high, out of uh, university was as a retail stockbroker, which was a great run. Did that for five years. Then I joined Oxford Properties in 1980. My father had started Oxford. I started as a leasing coordinator in Toronto in 1980. Uh, And then by the end of that decade, I was in leadership and became CEO in 92, and my father left the business. After that, we went through the uh, severely trying times of the early 90s, which was uh, a phenomenal challenge and one of my favorite times in my business career. Went public, built a business, and sold the Domers in 01. I took six months off, went dark, and started Kingset Capital in 02. We find ourselves here today. So when you took over as president of Oxford Properties, so your father, Don Love, started Oxford Properties in Edmonton, built the first medical clinic for a client uh, with the Poole Brothers, which is Good the founders of PCL Constructions, exactly. Um, you know, when you took over as president of Oxford Properties in 1987 and eventually became CEO in 92, what advice or words of wisdom did your father give you before kind of handing over the reins or stepping into that role uh, that you'll remember for the rest of your life? So I've got lots of stories. They're all small anecdotes that leave an imprint. But, you know, the overarching thing that he believed in that's guided my career is uh, high standard of values. And that's respect for other in- integrity, transparency, honesty, and all that stuff. And, and there are many circumstances where he modeled that where he helped me model that. And it's been the single most transformative part of me building both a career and a business. Well, you took over in uh, some pretty tough times for the real estate market, as you mentioned. You know, 1987, you took over as president and then CEO in 92. During your times as head of Oxford, though, with going public in 95, doing $7 billion in acquisitions over those ensuing six years, and then eventually the exit to Omer's in 2001 for about $4 billion. You had to obviously see a lot of ups and downs, but eventually having the company go private twice during two down markets with the 1980s and then the dot-com crash, crash in 2001, you know, how did those transactions impact your views on knowing when to sell versus when to hold? First of all, l- let me just start with the uh, difficult times of the early 90s. When I say difficult, it was hyper-difficult which was a fantastic leadership challenge and uh, intellectual and emotional challenge to get through that. I had a great team. Uh, We worked together well, learned a lot from people around us. And the counterparties that we had, lenders, joint venture partners, and so on, that we worked so closely with, they were kind enough to trust us and support us and do a lot of things for us because 
we were open, transparent, earnest, and that really moved the needle. I'll just give you one story. So the first time we couldn't pay the interest on a mortgage was July 4th, 1992. It's a life insurance company on Bloor Street. I had to go up and, and see them and explain to the chief investment officer that we wouldn't be able to make that month's mortgage payment. Terrifying. I went up, a uh, very hot day. We had an idea because they also owned some properties that were managed by someone else. And so our idea was if they could let us manage those buildings, we'd take half the management fees and apply it to the loan. And while that wouldn't fix the whole problem, that would be a step in the right direction. Anyway, so I sort of pitched that idea, but I'm very nervous. As I leave uh, and I go out the door, he stops and says, thanks for coming by. Well, thank you actually is the one response I didn't think I'd get. So I stopped and I said, thank you. He said, John, we have three kinds of borrowers. The first kind, borrow money, pay us back, and we like them the most. Second kind, borrow money and can't pay it back and are not open with us or hurt our collateral. And we go out of our way to hurt them. The third kind are people that have a problem. They come to see us. They tell us what it is. They offer some solutions. We'll work with them and we'll work with you. And that moment defined Oxford's strategy from 1992 to 1994, which is how we navigated the chicane without going through CCAA. That is the most unbelievable lesson for people out there who want to hide from problems, which eventually make them worse and exacerbate them, versus people who only think they're going to hit the target 100% of the time. But a majority of the situations of what you describe is what people should be doing and they choose not to, either because they're scared or because they think that they can solve it on their own before it gets out of control. But going face-to-face and speaking with someone, providing suggestions on how to fix it is obviously a great lesson for a lot of people out there. And I'm sure a lot of people are going through that, you know, motions right now, given the climate we're in, wouldn't you say? You know, I'd, I'd say two things. First of all, it sounds easy to do. It's terrifying. Fact is, it's terrifying. Because you have to go to someone and say, I can't honor our contract. But what I found is, I, I, we went to one large bank, I uh, had a loan on a property, and we knew that in nine months, when the <clears throat> tenant moved out, we wouldn't be able to pay interest after that. I went to see him, went through that whole dialogue, told him what we're trying to do, and said, but, you know, it, it looks like, you know, we'll, we'll be in a tough spot. I just wanted to let you know and, and give you a progress update. The guy looked at me, and he said, John, thank you very much for coming in, first of all. He said, secondly, do you see the piles uh, on my desk behind me? And there's all sorts of papers. He said, those people are all not paying their interest today. Why don't you come back to me in nine months? Tell me how you're doing. And you know what? We'll sort something out with you. (laughs) Boom. Wow. Often we don't trust other people. No one's out to hurt you at the end of the day. Uh, in, In a Canadian business context, you know, my experience has been if you're open, honest, transparent, earnest, empathetic, and say, look, I mean, everybody gets the newspaper. There was no surprise that there was these problems. So, I would go through them and made sure that everybody knew well in advance what was happening and what we do about it. Yeah. Get ahead of the problem and and speak about it in person and not just try to hide behind emails, which a lot of people do these days, which can be completely taken out of context. Let me give you another brief story. So it's 1984. We're leasing uh, an office building in Calgary. You know, we need one more major lease and working on a a large firm for 100,000 feet. Finally, there was a meeting on Sunday, and we made a deal. Shook hands, and that was that. Went to the office Monday. I'm super pumped. I read out the deal and realized I'd made a mistake. And the mistake I'd made was that we would pay the tenant inducement when they signed the lease, but we didn't even have a building built. It should have been the later of signing the lease or when the building's built. So I phoned my father and say, what should I do? So he gave me a story early in his career. Moral was, just tell the truth. So I phoned, the, I phoned the, the customer, the tenant back, and I said, I've got a problem. Can I come see you? So I went over to see him, and I said, look, I made a mistake. This is what it is. I'll stand by it because we shook hands, but I'd be grateful if we could fix the mistake. He said, I'll get back to you. And he phoned me back. He said, John, because you were prepared to honor your mistake, we'll, we'll fix it. We made a couple tweaks in the deal like it was okay. You know, it's the same story that, you know, if you make a mistake, you tell someone. And, you, and, you know, we're all big boys. We'll stand up to it. Well, big people. The counterparty will almost always do the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. We've had uh, some of our uh, investors in our funds have told us stories about how they've never gone back on a handshake acquisition they've ever made. Even after it's gone to the lawyers and gone to the accountants and they want to renegotiate terms, they've never broken a handshake deal. 
And it just shows that, you know, reputations can be built over a very, very, very long time, but they can be destroyed very quickly in one transaction. In this country, the real estate business is highly connected. And the fact is, you know, all real estate people live in the shallow end of the gene pool, no getting out. So um, we're all <laughs> we're all highly connected. And if someone acts well, good things happen. If someone acts poorly, the inverse is true. Right. Yeah. And a lot of the families in our fund that are uh, real estate families as well from many generations have also said that they'll never forget the people that were there for their family, meaning like the banks and the lenders during the tough times in the 80s and 90s. And they've stuck with them for the last 25, 50 years beyond that. In those tough times, you remember who your real friends are, which is you know the saying, people remember you on the way up, but they don't remember you much on the way down too. And the bad things you do can really come back to haunt you. So maybe back to the question at hand was, you know, given the two transactions that happened with uh, Oxford, you know, the, the privatization in the 80s and then the go public in 90s and then the privatization again in 2001, how did those different transactions impact your views on knowing when to sell versus hold? I mean, it splits into two issues. You know, it's being able to sell. Many businesses, many industries are made up of great creators, great builders, and terrible sellers. There is or there can be, you know, a time to sell almost everything. You know, in, in the case of Oxford, when, when we did that sale in 2001, uh, I remember being interviewed and saying, well, how could, you, how could you sell the family business? Well, it wasn't really a family business. It was, I'm not selling the family it's just a business. You know, my father was still my father and my kids were still my kids. My wife is, is still my wife. You have to have a sense strategically. Do you have the right capabilities to compete in a go-forward world? For Oxford, what Oxford really needed and got with Omers was significantly different access to capital because Oxford was a, at a scale where he was ready for that next leg. And, and you know, Omers, to their credit, have done great things with the business that just were handicapped by being a, you know, a billion dollar, billion and a half dollar market cap uh, public company. That was a decision that was a strategic decision and was the right thing. As to earlier, I mean, going public in 1995 was needing an access to capital. At the time, we had a $50 million uh, market cap, and so somewhat less. To get access to capital, the public markets was, was transformative to allow us to do all those acquisitions and grow and so on and so forth. Right. So it's just right, you know, at the time and place like there was this decision that needed to create this unlock and whether that was going private and getting access to a larger capital pool to deploy into investments and opportunities was the right decision for the family and for the business, which obviously are separate decisions on their own, but together they obviously made sense as a whole. You know, entrepreneurs, business builders all have one handicap, which is they think tomorrow is always better than today. So therefore there's never a good time to sell. That can be the downfall of many people that ride, ride a business, perhaps lose their way, whatever, and, you know, it doesn't end well. You know, selling a business, any business, an asset, any asset is actually an acquired skill. Yeah, I like to call it the delusional optimist versus the pragmatic optimist, maybe, as an entrepreneur, is a different uh, skill set that people learn over their careers. You know, after you took six months off, you reemerged and started Kingset Capital in 2002, and now the firm has over $17 billion in assets under management and obviously has established a proven track record of delivering success for growth, income, urban, mortgage, residential development, and affordable housing investment strategies. You know, during your time at Oxford, you obviously saw and learned a lot. How did your leadership style change or your approach to building Kingset change when you started it versus your time when you were leading Oxford? Well, you know, the totally different businesses and business models. The one thing that was consistent was, you know, the need to have strong relationships with capital providers. It was those strong relationships at Oxford that then morphed into it and allowed me to, to start and then ultimately build Kingset. But, you know, it's leading a business with, you know, 3,000 employees and, you know, blah, 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 public company and so on, and going to a startup uh, where to get a plane ticket, you have to call Air Canada is quite an adjustment. But it was also super energizing for me because it was taking a blank piece of paper and, and creating a business, putting together the right stakeholders and the right leadership team uh, to then see a business work and flourish. And uh, it has been a lot of fun. Did you ever second guess yourself after starting Kingset, you know, thinking the grass was always greener, but then also being a CEO of a public company like Oxford also could have been pretty comfortable? Only every morning. I mean, I think, <laughs> you know, I, I think I wake up every day afraid and it gets worse as the day goes on. Any business leader who's not fearful uh, is going to get steamrolled because the fact is we need to spend our day thinking about 
risk and opportunity, not just opportunity. It's always terrifying. I mean, the whole the private equity business is a terror wheel. You worry, can I raise the money? Then you do. You worry, can I invest the money? Then you do. You worry, can I create the value? Then you do. Then you worry, can I harvest those assets? Then you do. Then you say, well, can I raise money again? A vicious flywheel of fear. Any you know, great PE shop, and you know, we view ourselves as private equity real estate, it has all the same, same issues, and it's all a reign of terror. A lot of people struggling to break out from those kind of salaried, cushy jobs always have this uh, fear of like, well, there's the salary and security, but there's also the equity and the ownership uh, equation. You know, how do you think about those balances and how should other people who are maybe on the fence of jumping ship to start their own thing, to have the equity and ownership building, but fear of leaving the salary and the security behind? Everybody's personal financial circumstances are different. You know, starting a business is high risk because you, you just don't know. And to go from startup to what I'll call uh, scale up to what I'll call sustainability uh, are three big changes. They happen over time. Often people that are in a job think starting a business is perhaps easier than it is. You know, the first thing you have to do is take a hard, pragmatic look. Then you have to say, who's my, who's, who am I going to work with? Because if there are people that are the same as you, you'll be bound to fail. Because the first thing you need is diverse leadership. And, and, and by that, I mean people with different skills. They, they may not be your best friend going to the bar, but they augment the skills you may or may not have. And I think you have to understand what your financial runway is. So obviously I left Oxford, like I was financially okay and I could take the risk. And I was also relatively young when I started King's I was 47. So I had lots of runway before you see the, the taillights. Uh, I wouldn't start a business today, you know, cause I'm, I'm hovering over the tail, you know, the, the runway end lights. Starting a business is tremendously energetic and exciting. And I would, for younger people who've got an idea that they think is a competitive idea, they think they have some competitive skills. There's nothing more energetic or exciting than executing. It's all about putting together the right team, the right stakeholders, the right advisors, the right partners in the right structure, giving that some careful thought. Yeah, those are really two great points. The best advice I got when I was raising my first fund for Ripple, when I sat down with an LP was they weren't asking me about my strategy. They weren't asking about sort of like, you know, my background or performance to date. They were asking about my personal runway. How long could I finance this type of building? personally, knowing that I probably wouldn't be seeing much of a salary for the first several years. And that was a really good, honest question for me to think about and sit down and analyze, do I have the runway to do that? Of course, it's up to everyone's personal decision. But if you if you haven't had that conversation with yourself, it's important to do that. And then secondly, investing in your team early and finding a diverse leadership team was the best advice I got. And I did that as well. And I'm very happy I did that instead of trying and do everything myself as a Swiss army knife, which I'm sure you don't want to do as well. You know, when I raised my first fund, I gave the lead investors my personal balance sheet. And I said, here's what I'm worth. This is what I have. And here's how much I'd like to put in the first limited partnership. That transparency, which many people find disarming, is super effective because they say, okay, well, I see what you're doing and why that makes sense to me. And that all works. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at first fund for me, same thing, rolled a bunch of my private investments in as LP commitments uh, at cost, even though they are worth more on paper. Uh, and that showed a lot of skin in the game for a lot of uh, LPs to trust me. And obviously, you know, but speaking of talent, King said has had an incredible, you know, group of people around them since the very beginning. How do you think about retaining talent at King set? And do you give your employees the rights to like co-invest and build up equity? What are your thoughts about that? I think you have to do three things. One is, is, you know, you have to walk the talk of a culture with, you know, with values, open transparency. It's got to be, it's got to be a good working environment. Secondly, is you got to give people interesting things to do, stretch them a bit, give them decision-making power, uh, encourage them and, and entice them. And then of course, third is, is you've got to make sure they're economically well taken care of. But uh, the economics can't, uh, don't work if you don't do the first two things. You know, we're pretty aggressive at inviting uh, all employees to participate at whatever level they want to invest in the funds. So they invest at the fund level, not at an asset level, at a fund level, same as our investors. And so today, you know, we have hundreds of millions of dollars of, of inmate money, employee money, invested in our funds on the same basis as, as our investors. And, and because of that, the second Tuesday of every month when distributions go out, everybody gets the same ping on their computer that, uh, <laughs> that our investors do, which does you know, focus the mind on what is it that we're actually doing. 
That's incredible. Everyone gets the same sort of bing, you know, like the gong ringing uh, at the same time, knowing that they're all performing well together, which is great. And I'm sure people who leave the firm might miss that sound and have some PTSD from not having it happen when they're not at the office. (laughs) Speaking of fundraising, how has your approach to fundraising evolved since your first few funds? And how do you choose the right LPs to work with, given how long you've been in the business? Yeah, so I'd say the biggest evolution is uh, having shifted somewhat from a a total reliance on the largest pension funds to sort of having two cohorts, which is large institutions and and, uh, very large uh, high net worth families. There are different stakeholders, uh, different kind of relationship servicing requirements and stuff like that. As to, you know, selection, what we do is have sort of a candid discussion about what our objectives are, where we find a high degree of alignment on objectives, then that can be a successful relationship with an investor. If someone has, you know, materially different objectives on one of a number of fronts, perhaps this isn't the right vehicle for you. Got it. So you're trying to match, obviously, the the focus and the goal of all the different strategies with, obviously, the strategies of what the LPs are trying to align with. And if there's a mismatch, then maybe it's not the right LP mix. You know, given the size of your assets right now and the capital allocation needs, how do you weigh the opportunities to pass on when they're smaller dollar amounts that can return significant ROI, but they lack in the scale and capital allocation needs when you look at new opportunities? We do them all. <laughs> You do them all. Okay. That's pretty easy. So you don't have to worry about that. I got an army out here. And if you've got a $5 million deal that is, you know, compelling and its returns and so on and so forth, you know, we'll do that. We've done $5 billion privatization. We've done $2 billion asset portfolios. We've done $3.2 million joint ventures. You can sit down on a piece of paper and say, what is the ideal deal look like? And you end up writing all that up. There's never such a thing as that deal. Uh, we'd like to have a broad and deep gathering system, uh, which is why we have offices in Vancouver and Montreal as well as here. And we've got, uh, you know, a lot of people because we'd like to see as much as we can. And if it, if it's a good deal, makes sense, we'll have a home for it somewhere. Well, I'll make sure to send anything that's what I thought would be too small your way next time I see something. You know, given all the complementary lines of business that Kingset focuses on, how does the firm uh, approach de-risking opportunities across all the different lines? without increasing the correlation between the market swings and obviously the downside risk? Like, how do you hedge that correlation risk at the firm? They're they're really uncorrelated strategies. I mean, obviously, it's real estate, but uncorrelated strategies. For example, you know, our opportunity fund is an event-driven strategy. You you make an investment to execute a specific event. You do it, you sell it, full stop. Our core strategy are lifers. Assets, you say, I'd like to own that for life. Our urban infill fund, is is a, a different opportunity fund with a different n- micro niche strategy. The affordable housing fund has got a totally different focus. The hotels have a different you know focus again on the credit business. You know we've got a high yield fund, a senior mortgage fund, we've got a prime residential fund, or a CMAC issuer. They all have different different strategies. So interest rates affect everybody. Real estate conditions affect everybody. Those funds are all have quite different uh, drivers and. You know, the risk management in each of those is different. So on the opportunity fund is getting off the playing field as fast as you can. Over 20 years and $30 billion of investing, our average dollar outstanding has only been for 39 months. You know, that's achieved a 2.2 multiple and so on and so forth. So, And that's that's a huge risk mitigant. In our income fund, you know, it, it's about asset, you know, diversification and, you know, doing all the typical diversification things. And so, and so it goes. So there's no blanket risk mitigant. Every every strategy has its own risk strategy. No, that makes sense. You know, I want to switch gears and speak about the markets though here, because obviously debt funds have all been in the news lately with Romspen being the most notable one. You know, right now the debt markets are tighter. Lenders are less willing to lend to projects and scale back because of the valuations are more uncertain. Meanwhile, rates are in the double digits. You know, wouldn't this be the most opportune time to get money at the door? You know, when you originally raised your debt funds, you were probably at a 5% target but now offering loans at 10% plus. So how is your capital deployment cycles change in the current rate environment? And are you still being cautious? I mean, as a lender, this is, a, this is quite a good environment. So I would tell you, our high yield fund over now 17 years uh, has returned to investors as low as 11% and as high as 14 You know, it's a spread lending business, been pretty consistent. What we're doing now is we are capturing less of the interest rate increase by taking less risk. So as, as primary lenders close in, uh, we close in behind them. 
So our loan to value ratios are lower today than they were a year ago and two years ago. Um, and we've been able to be more conservative while still delivering, you know, the premium risk weighted returns to, to LPs. The actual volume right now is less because there's just less going on in the market. Our activity is driven by capital transactions and new construction, both of which have, have slowed materially. You know, we're getting our, our good share of volume. And some others are locked up, have capital constraints, redemption issues, and so on and so forth. And our credit funds are all fine. Right. So I guess uh, on the flip side from the credit moving to the equity, with the rates of where they are, treasury yields and the high single digits, are there equity deals getting done? Are equity investors willing to deploy capital given where the risk-free rates are? Yeah. I mean, there, you know, there is capital going. I mean, we, we just raised $360 million of LP capital for our core fund. What we're not seeing is any distress yet. We, I, I'm not sure we'll see much distress, to be honest with you. Uh, the U.S. market is quite different. The U.S. will see some material stress because of the regional banking crisis and some other reasons there. We don't have those facts here. And so we don't, we don't see any crisis. So we've got a lot of liquidity in, in actually every uh, fund strategy, but are being kind of cautious to deploy it because we want to see a sort of a premium return, which we're not seeing yet. Gotcha. You know, I want to switch gears over to the innovation side of real estate. You know, it seems like innovation in real estate is often slow to change as it often comes down to the cost of capital at the end of the day. You know, is that a feature or a bug in your opinion? And why are the incumbents so slow to adopt innovation? Well, I think it's a little bit of a misnomer, if you bear with me. I mean, for example, our elevators in Scotia Plaza are, are all AI-driven, right? Um, and so that AI technology has improved the performance of those uh, elevators by 100%. We have Bluetooth technology, facial recognition technology. Uh, if you were to go down in, in the control center of, of the big office complexes, you, you'd find an am amazingly sophisticated uh, way to, to do peak shaving and energy management and so on and so forth. So there has been a lot of innovation there. You know, if you think of just basic home building, there's been little innovation. And because the industry is struggling to say, well, you know, like, I don't know how to, people like Mattamy have been leaders in, in trying to mass manufacture buildings in a warehouse and modular and, and some of those things. But it's, it's not been obvious wide adoption. It's not quite open to us on how you can build an apartment building uh, with any great, technological breakthrough as much as we'd love to. But things we're working on all either go around the efficiency of operating a building or our decarbonization strategy. Something that we are working hard on and any PE, technology PE firm I can talk to will say if someone can crack the code of really efficient solar potential for curtain walls, they'd have a global beating business. That, to me, that's one of the greatest opportunities there is. We're doing tons of stuff on, on, on technology. I've been, we've got four people who do nothing but building technology and are working because they're, they're, they're leading our decarbonization, so on and so forth. I mean, who knows? I, I, we got the Royal York will be officially decarbonized by November 15th, um, which a 90-year-old hotel, the only hotel in Canada to achieve that is a pretty good story. Yeah, I mean, you and Kingshead have been incredible leaders when it comes to sustainability and ESG standards with your properties, including the Royal York. In your opinion, what are preventing other investors from doubling down on ESG and sustainability investing in their portfolios? And what can be done to address the dollars going in, obviously, besides government grants? Many don't understand the business model. For me, the business model is you make these investments, you achieve a suboptimal return from just the static investment. But then you have to build in what the potential of that investment is in the future, which gives you a premium return. So it's things like carbon tax avoidance, avoiding utility irregularity. The holy grail, of course, is going to be customer preference. Now, we're not seeing customer pricing power yet, but I think that's a question of time. Others who are not doing it, most others aren't doing it. I mean, we are a little bit on our own here. But it's my view, and let me just take a specific example. So the Royal York, zero carbon, you have to know that we're going to be going after many corporate of our large corporate customers and say, look, we've got 20% of your business. This aligns with all of your stated objectives. We'd like 30%. Uh, we'll be going after any conference that would come to the city that you know is on ESG, sustainability, climate, whatever, and say, we'd love to host you. And if someone says, well, I don't, I'm not sure your rooms are $10 more expensive, well, then we'll both know who we are. You're calling people's bluffs. I love it. 
That is awesome. Bring it to them and make them look like the bad guys, even though on the surface they're saying something different. Totally. And this is going to be super interesting. Remember, a hotel opens up vacant every day, right? It's a a super dynamic uh, customer response system. Uh, You know, we are on, I think it's November 15th, we have our big public announcement and so on and so forth. The work is almost all done. It's an unbelievable amount of work. Anyway, uh, $65 million investment. But when it's done, we'll be the only hotel in Canada that's zero carpet. No, I love it. It's a very bottoms-up and top-down strategy that you're trying to employ here uh, for bringing more awareness and also dollars into it. So good luck with all that, John. You know, one thing you mentioned before was innovation or lack of innovation in the home-building market. You know, the government of Ontario wants to build 1.5 million homes over the next 10 years. However, many industry people think that we simply just don't have the manpower or the bandwidth to build that many, even if we get the regulatory changes. Do you think there needs to be more innovation on the ground and in like the building sciences, like materials and energy that you have been seeing, obviously in the downtown buildings you own and operate? And what is stopping people from investing in those? Are you investing in those areas personally? Well, no, I I mean, well, I've got a number of investments in prop tech initiatives, which for me, hopefully is the double bottom line. You know, you'd always like to think you would make some money, but it's, it's the information flow that, that, that is most interesting to me, you know, to meet the housing targets, you've got to, you got to deal with a regulatory gridlock, which is NIMBYism based primarily. You've got to deal with the labor shortage, which is massive. So we, our immigration strategy has to focus on people that can carry a tool and give them the credentials to, to exercise their trade. Thirdly, you know, like, the capital is there. The industry is there. The demand's there. Whether we can do an extra 300,000 units a year, I mean, I, I, you know, that, that's a tall order. But we have to build more housing, and we have to get at it. Yeah, I, I really hope we do. And I hope there is some innovation that comes down the pipe to make this more efficient for everyone. You know, if you want to talk about innovation, we could build mobile home communities that are very sophisticated, uh, not trailer parks, but very sophisticated. And you could, you could, you could populate... Uh, a lot of people very quickly doing that. The problem is nobody wants it near them. We have to make these trade-offs because if, if you want rapid housing, you know, that is an answer. Oh, well, the other answer too is the way that people are, developers are charged for condo development versus apartment buildings, you know, and the amortization of the cost over the life of the asset versus paying up front upon uh, transfer of title, right? I mean, thankfully, the the uh, the feds and Ontario's backed it, BC's backed are prepared to waive you know, HST and GST, which is a major mover. The city of Toronto has got programs for, uh, if it's affordable housing, making uh, a significant reduction on development fees. Uh, and those two things combined with CMHC's RCFI financing make a ton of affordable projects viable. We just have to get these things through the system faster because <laughs> everything takes forever. But there's other choices on housing. There's 8,500 apartments in Toronto that are used exclusively for Airbnb. Now, what, how New York City's addressed this is they, they've said Airbnb has to be a 30-day minimum. In other words, residents. So they've converted it back to housing as versus being hotel competitive. We've got lots of hotel space. Uh, we don't need more hotel room, but we sure as heck need more, more space. So number one. Number two is, you, you might have seen this week, BC announced a rental uh, you know, a program to give people a loan to make a secondary suite in their home. Uh, again, I think a very constructive strategy. Although many of these decisions get beat up in the regulations, because when you get to page 72 in that particular regulation, they'll only give the loan to you if your household income is below 209000 Not many people in Vancouver who own a home have a household income less than two hundred nine. That's an imperfect set of facts. But, but it's the right direction, because those things can happen quickly. Because we need building new housing takes three years, four years. If you have to get a permit, add three years to that, right? Because a permit is typically three, four years, and it takes three years to build the building. So like these are important long-term steps. They don't, start, they don't solve the current crisis. So we've got to do other things. And the other things would include uh, a discussion on Airbnb, a discussion on you know, mobile home communities, a discussion on secondary suites and how to accelerate that, a discussion on regional transit. If we had, if we had up-level service to bury Hamilton and Oshawa on a 15-minute cycle all day long, you'd open up an enormous amount of geography and make it commutable to Toronto. No, for sure. John, you've been so open and transparent with a lot of your thoughts and opinions on a lot of these you know, proposals, and I appreciate that. But one of the things that you have been very open and transparent about is how you've been leading the back-to-the-office mandate very early on. And I'm sure it's been a difficult situation for some of the younger generation of employees versus the old employees' philosophies of working in office. 
you know, how have you been able to balance this issue? And what advice would you give to younger CEOs and leaders struggling with getting employees back to the office? To me, this is a simple story. If you think you can do your job remotely, you're competing with talent in Manila, Bombay, Cincinnati, and Saskatoon. B, you will learn nothing. You're just, you're just a functionary. So you're, you're basically a commodity. You're doing a task. And you're 28, you're doing a task. And if you do the task well, when you're 48, you can do the same task. If you want to learn, grow, and build a career, you got to be in the office. Now, our, our program is four in one. So four days in the office and Fridays are work from anywhere. And people love it. And as I look around our office, everybody's talking to each other. Why? They're collaborating, learning, and, you know, like meetings start, people talk about different things. Zoom meetings, they go on and boom, it's agenda. And then at the designated time, boom, everybody goes off. Where this is going is inevitable, which is that, you know, there will be three days or four days in the office when everybody's together. Because, you know, at the end of the day, most of us are social animals. You know, the absence of, of learning and growing and building relationships. You know, how many people meet a spouse related to an office encounter or a business encounter or something like that. And if you're living in your parents' basement, you might be doing that for another 20 years. It's great advice, John. And it also goes back to when you said you're dealing with some pretty tough issues uh, at Oxford and how to go in person to have those tough conversations. And when things are all great and the company's doing well, yeah, people can work remotely and you know high five each other virtually. But when things are not going well and you need to rally the troops and be in battle mode, it's a lot harder to do remotely than when it is in person, wouldn't you say? Oh, totally. You can't create a business by talking to a screen. You know, you get in a room because there's <clears throat> every moment is, is full of joy and terror. And to process that and have the emotional support, you know, you have to have people together. This will all evolve. I mean, I, you know, we had a professional firm. Uh, the senior partner said, I can't get my young people back in the office. It's a Toronto-based firm. So I said, okay, we're, we're going to move that business to Winnipeg because they're all in the office. And I'm not going to pay Toronto rates for work I can get done in Winnipeg because they had half the price. Guess what? Next day, the dozen kids were all in the office. Why? Because the senior partner said to him, you know, you can stay at home, but you just have to find a new customer. They never thought about getting a customer because we were moving our business. Yeah. It's great advice, John. I appreciate it. And all the advice you've been giving, you know, publicly and obviously in this form is really appreciative. You know, I want to switch gears for a sec. You've got your family office, Jonah Capital, you know, how have you and the family thought about diversification and allocating capital to other asset classes that are obviously less correlated to Kingshead and the real estate areas? And what areas are you most excited about investing in in these current markets, given that you say it's a lot of idea generation and, you know, transfer of knowledge beyond just sort of capital appreciation? You know, we built an investment profile outside and away from Kingshead, although our challenge is that if we put all of that together in a bucket, uh, it doesn't earn what Kingshead does. Fact, if we put it all in the bucket and multiply it by two, it doesn't earn what Kingset does. So, you know, there's reasons to do that for diversification, liquidity, and others. We really like the energy trade today because I think energy is immutable. I mean, it is, there's been so much social pressure to underweight the new investment in new energy that those that have are going to find it's increasingly valuable. So I think the energy trade is super interesting. You know, technology is also, you know, a heavy weight for us because, and, you know, we have a combination of big tech and Little tech. And the little tech is a bit more sketchy because it's hit and miss. Uh, and that tends to be all private stuff. Like I think technology is, is, is another course theme. So real estate, tech, and, and energy would be our kind of core themes. You know, have you ever made any passion investments like buying a hockey team or a football team? You know, what keeps you young and sharp besides all the amazing grandchildren you have? Well, my wife would keep me young and sharp. Um, <laughs> I, I think, uh, you know, a passion investment. Let me see. I, I am supporting my nephew's uh, Calabooza baseball team in uh, in suburban LA, but no, that that wouldn't be for me. The passion investments we would typically do are uh, investing in like the Barlow MS Center uh, at St. Mike's in the new Ivy Building in uh, at Western. We have a, a number of initiatives. That's where our passion investing would be in trying to help other people and and think through an impact that we can make a measurable impact. So as versus being shallow and broad. We try to be focused, deep, and and with high expectations of an impact. Yeah, absolutely. And the impact has been felt very far and wide across this country. So appreciative of all the support you've been giving uh, to all those initiatives. You know, I got to ask you before we jump into our last section, how annoyed are you with the current situation in Ottawa and the lack of urgency and speed at which things are getting done? And 
Will you ever run for prime minister? I'm sorry, I had to ask. I'm self-aware enough to know that I don't have the right instincts to be a politician. I would never run for public office. But I do feel as a business leader, you know, that we all have an obligation to share our thoughts and views and, and not to complain about things because that's intellectually shallow in the narrow sense. But to, to say, here's an issue and here's some ideas, not all of which anybody will like, but, you know, at least, at least contribute to the discussion. My frustration is Canada has such enormous opportunity that is being left on the street. We've got phenomenal natural resources, human resources, financial resources. We've got so many good things going for us. And I see at all political levels that all the discussion is on wedge issues and uh, personalities and uh, whether LGBTQ is good or bad or, you know, like, uh, I mean, we are a liberal democracy with a financial heartbeat. Let's create prosperity for every Canadian coast to coast. Let's make some big ideas. But also, why don't we make a big contribution to climate change? Why don't we dis... You know, we've got so many excess resources, we could disintermediate the burning of coal for energy globally. Can you imagine that as a big idea? We could really make a difference if we put our mind to it, if we work together. But there's no, there's no bold visions anymore. There's no prosperity agenda. There's no hope for the future. It's all about, you know, this guy's a bad guy and, and this guy is a bad guy and, you know, and we call those elections. You know, it's partially because social media has connected and amplified the most fringe of thought. To some degree, we have tyranny of the minority. It's unfortunate because we need some bold vision. This is, a, this is a phenomenal country with so much going for it that uh, my frustration is not what is going on, it's the lost opportunity of what could be going on. Yeah, I think um, you know, we see it on the very front lines, given that we invest at the very early stages of bold, innovative companies getting built. I think what we're seeing, though, is one, the later investor community, you know, call it the sort of growth equity investors are just not as ambitious. Uh, and so these founders are being forced into the US market where they can find capital and partners to work with. And then eventually the acquirers of these businesses are also based out of the US market who are more bold and aggressive in terms of the allocation of dollars they'll put. I mean, the, the most perfect example is the Oxy investment and acquisition of Carbon Engineering, the carbon capture company out of Squamish, BC. That is a asset that we should be holding onto forever as a Canadian economy is so dependent on resources like that, you know, we just gave it up for, you know, a billion dollars and we should have held on to that asset and we should be up in arms for more of that. I'm going to take you on a little bit because you're talking about that, that you think our capital is uncompetitive. And I think, I think it's a bit of a different story. The, the fact is our economy is a tenth the size of the U.S. By definition, their capital aggregation ability is totally different than ours. I wouldn't say the risk appetite is different, but the risk appetite at scale is different. What we suffer from is an excess regulatory burden that penalizes risk-taking. You know, you can't get a permit to do something. If, if, and let me just give you one example. If you look in the U.S., they come out with the IRA, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act. You read that act and you say, okay, I understand exactly what the rules and, and regs are. I can, I can invest around that and I can make a business model around that and it will attract an untold sum of money. You come to Canada and on the same nature of issues, you have to make a a one-on-one -on -one pitch to the government, and if you're, and even if you do have a good idea, it could be, it could be five years in, in regulatory purgatory. In the U.S., you go to another state, and you can get going. Well, we can't get out of our own way. Where carbon engineering's future is, it'll all be in the U.S. Everything will be in the U.S. Why? Because the IRA makes that business an unbelievable success story, and it cannot be done in Canada. Why? Because we don't have rules. You know, all we have is regulations. We don't have any any pathway for that business to execute its strategy. Yeah, I, I think where I'm coming at it from, just to make sure you understand what I'm saying, is that the investors here are not willing to stomach losses as long as the U.S. investors are in the early days of company development and research and development, uh, you know, companies that just don't want to be pushed into this bad revenue mix early on, and therefore they force them to sell or liquidate or just won't continue to support them. But the U.S. investors that we work with are much more comfortable letting a company build and grow when it doesn't have the necessary revenue you know, metrics to clearly say if this is a success or not early on. But I digress. There's a lot of differences between what you do at the real estate side and what we do at the early investment side. But we'll save that for another podcast. You know, Before we wrap things up, we always ask our guests for their fast favorites. So first off, your favorite podcast. 
This one. Perfect. Next is your favorite newsletter or blog. I would read my favorite. I'm going to say newspaper. I, uh, Bloomberg News, I think, is the best news. Yeah. So you're a subscriber to Bloomberg News. You listen and read to that. Perfect. Next is your favorite tech gadget. Uh, for sure. For sure. This thing. Is it a BlackBerry? No. Hey, hey it used to be. <laughs> used to be. Exactly. Your favorite new trend. The social adoption of both FaceTime and Zoom uh, with my extended family. Absolutely. It's very nice. And uh, and I don't look at it as screen time when I get my daughter and son to look at the grandparents when they're far, far away. So I agree with that. Favorite book or most recently read book? It was a story about a child and a kite that I read my granddaughter. <laughs> Fantastic. And last but not least, your favorite life lesson. So in 1995, we'd taken Oxford up, uh, brought in a Hong Kong investor a guy named Charles Chan, wonderful guy. Uh, he put in $60 million. Market cap was 100. He was 60%. Uh, that was in July. By March of that year, the stock price had gone from 5 to 250. So it had only taken me nine months to reduce his investment in half. So I flew over to Hong Kong and he picked me up at the airport and we're out at, uh, you know, having our feet massaged at someplace. I leaned over and I said, Charles, you know, the company's actually done a little bit better than we had forecasted, but the stock price is really disappointing. Charles looked at me and he said, John, you worry about the company and the stock will look after itself. The next day, I was in his office. Our market cap was 50 million. I was in his office reviewing the prospect to acquire a company called Marathon Realty. It was a billion dollar acquisition. And I needed him to underwrite 150 million of equity to make that happen. We spent two hours, he went through it and he said, I'll do it. Years later, I mean, the end of the story is the 60 million that he invested in Oxford, five years later, he, when the company was sold, he got 300 for it. And I said to him, because that was transformative for the company. Why did you uh, do that back in 1996? He said, I bet on people and I trusted you. Bet on people and you will do well in life. And I absolutely agree with that, John. Thank you so much for joining us in the tank today. It's been an absolute pleasure and I can't wait for people to listen to this. Thanks again. Take care. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Tank Talks. We hope you found today's conversation as insightful as we did. If you're enjoying the show, we've got three quick things to ask of you. First, hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or YouTube. Next, follow us and stay up to date on upcoming episodes and behind-the-scenes content on social media with Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And lastly, share the love. If you found value in today's episode, share with a friend or colleague who'd benefit too. Your support helps us bring in more amazing guests and keeps the Tank Talks engine running. That's it for today. Until next time, keep disrupting and innovating.